Simmons Liver Regulator. The symptoms of liver complaint are uneasiness and pain in the side. Sometimes the pain is in the shoulder and is mistaken for rheumatism. The stomach is affected with loss of appetite and sickness, bowels in general costive, sometimes alternating with lax. The head is troubled with pain and dull, heavy sensation, considerable loss of memory, accompanied with painful sensation of having left undone something which ought to have been done. Often, complaining of weakness, debility, and low spirits, Sometimes, some of the above symptoms attend the disease, and at other times, very few of them, but the liver is generally the organ most involved. Cure the liver with Dr. Simmons' Liver Regulator, a preparation of roots and herbs warranted to be strictly vegetable and can do no injury to anyone. It has been used by hundreds and known for the last 35 years as one of the most reliable, efficacious, and harmless preparations ever offered to the suffering. If taken regularly and persistently, it is sure to cure. Dyspepsia, headache, jaundice, costiveness, sick headache, chronic diarrhea, affections of the bladder, camp dysentery, affections of the kidneys, fever, nervousness, chills, diseases of the skin, impurity of the blood, melancholy or depression of spirits, heartburn, colic, or pains in the bowels, pain in the head, fever and ague, dropsy, boils, pain in the back limbs, and asthma, erysipelas, female affections, and bilious diseases generally, prepared only by J. H. Xylan and Company, Druggists, Macon, Georgia. Price $1, by mail $1.25. At wholesale by Robotian and Company, St. Louis, Missouri. G.C. Alexander, Lexington, Missouri. Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Trigger warning. This episode focuses on the accidental, violent death of a little girl. Hey there. So, I had some thoughts today. My having been in quarantine with a baby who then became a toddler probably has a hell of a lot to do with why I was suddenly ready to take the plunge 
into extemporaneously doing this podcast and not editing it when I hadn't been ready to do that for for years. I just couldn't make myself do it. This occurred to me because just recently, the most, uh, well, the most recent trial I've been through was just having the acceptance to understand that there was nothing wrong with me. I hadn't done anything wrong in my upbringing of my toddler just because she behaves differently towards me than she does towards my wife. Uh, Specifically, she has not wanted to go outside in the snow, which really threw me for a loop because I feel strongly about getting kids outside and, and active. The fact that she didn't want to do that, and she did it, more or less, with my wife, uh, really had me hung up. Uh, I felt bad. I felt like I had done something wrong, that she just, just wouldn't do anything. I'd get her outside, and she'd whine and cry and demand that I carry her, just cling to me like a lamprey. And uh, for the last couple of weeks, I've been struggling, and I finally accepted that, look, I'm the one who's been carrying her 95% of the time since she's been born. I've been there most of the time. Of course she has a different relationship with me than she has with my wife. Of course she probably finds a certain comfort in my carrying her around and holding her than than she does with my wife. So it stands to reason. Bottom line, I haven't done anything wrong. So I think that working towards that kind of emotional acceptance had a lot to do with me accepting that, look, this is to a greater or lesser degree, it's going to suck before it can get better. So here I am. Another thought I had was that I should share with you why I focus on Syracuse so much, because if you're new to this, that's probably not clear at all. Long story short, I have ancestors in Syracuse. I didn't know that until I started doing my genealogy research about six years ago. And the more I delved into the historical newspapers, thanks to Fulton history, the more I discovered wild, trippy, tragic, hilarious stories about my ancestors, the more I got into the newspapers. And that's how I discovered the absurd, uh, kaleidoscopic nature of the partisan press of the mid to late 19th century. I mean, we think of newspapers as partisan today, but man, compared to, say, the Syracuse Daily Courier and Union versus the Syracuse Daily Standard, today's media landscape has got nothing on them. So, the other day, I was getting back to my hankering to look in on the Syracuse of 50, 100, or 150 years ago on that day, 
So I started with the Library of Congress Chronicling America website. That's their repository of historical newspapers. And I started there because it's much easier to do a date-based search there than it is on Fulton history. So I entered the specific date range of a single day, uh, March 10th. Sorry, this was, uh, this was the day after the last episode, so that was uh, March 11th, 1871. And uh, searching for the keyword Syracuse. I got five hits, the first four being crap, just uninteresting stuff like uh, railroad schedules. The fifth, catnip. And I use that word all the time because I follow my nose when it comes to historical investigations, and this one smelled like catnip. Here it is. It's from Lexington, Missouri. A Syracuse court has assessed the value of two young bears lost on a railway at $450 apiece and the price of an infant killed by a streetcar at $200. What? Okay, I needed to know <laughs> the story behind that because it was one of those stories that's just vague enough so that I knew it was probably going to be hard to find the details, but I also knew that I could do it if I tried. It was irresistible. So I tried a bunch of different keyword combinations in the Library of Congress, Chronicling America, and in Fulton History. Pretty quickly started working my way backwards from March 11th, 1871. This is from March 16th. Corning, New York. Now that the public mind is turned to the subject of valuation in Onondaga County, it is well to note the comparative valuation estimated in her courts on animal life in the present... Uh, in the present something of the circuit court, two cases have been decided by competent jurors, setting this matter in a strong light. A little girl, four years old, was run over by a streetcar and killed. The father brought a suit, and the damage was set at $200. Two cubs from the North Woods were put on the express cars from Syracuse to Sandy Creek and died on the way. It was claimed by the owners that it was through the carelessness of the company, and the damage was put at $900, $450 each for the two little bears. Baldwinsville Gazette. Huh. Okay, so now I'm getting some more details. And I will continue with my investigation after this message from our sponsor. Wilson and Hutchinson's column. Bargains in dry goods at Wilson and Hutchinson's Dry Goods Emporium, number 105 Main Street, Lexington. On the advent of a new year, a season above all others, radiant with kindly feelings, we would respectfully present our best thanks to the ladies and... 
of Lexington and Lafayette County for their liberal patronage during the past year and still catering for future favors, we now offer our entire stock of winter dry goods at greatly reduced prices for cash, such as blankets, heavy casimirs, plain and plaid flannels, empress cloths, French merinos, poplins of every descriptions, in fact, goods that are required in every family. Our reasons for so doing are twofold and very easily explained. The springtime is coming and our winter stock must be sold. By converting them into cash, we run no risk and can afford to dispense with our usual profits. We know that original cost today is better than a possible profit next winter, and we must have the greenbacks to purchase our spring stock with. We mention these facts for the purpose of showing that our reduced prices are not mere assertions, but based upon self-evident commercial principles, operating as much to our own advantage as that of the public. Come one! Come all! We are sole agents for Mrs. Moody's celebrated abdominal corsets, the only corset made on correct principles, which gives ease and comfort, being a lasting benefit to those who use them. Our dressmaking department is a fixed fact, a perfect success, thanks to the ladies. All work done has given perfect satisfaction under the charge of Mrs. Jenny Martin, one of the best Mantua makers in the West. All ladies who desire to have a stylish, handsome, and above all, a perfect fitting dress should not fail to call on Mrs. Martin. Our dollar table still flourishes. Call and get your dollar's worth at Wilson and Hutchison's, number 105 Main Street. And we're back. Working back to February 21st, 1871, we find this from the Syracuse Daily Standard. Ah, this is the same article. Now that the public mind is turned to the subject of valuation in Onondaga County, yada, yada, yada. Ah, and I see that word that I couldn't figure out because the newsprint was so blurry in the present term of the circuit court. Two cases have been decided by competent jurors, blah, blah, blah. Uh, by the way, the reason that I have so many pauses and false starts in this uh, new incarnation of the podcast is the vast majority of the newspaper articles I find are from Fulton History, which means they're third-generation microfilm, which means it's a wonder I can read them at all. Now, we have this from the Rochester Evening Express, February 16th. Babies and bears. You will naturally inquire what connection babies and bears have to each other. It may be interesting to know that the question of the valuation of each of these commodities has been considered and settled by, all, by an Onondaga County jury. During the circuit court, now in session in this city, a jury was called upon to decide the injury which a father sustained in consequence of having his little four-year-old girl run over by a streetcar and killed, and they found that he sustained damages to the extent of $200. Afterwards, they settled the valuation of bears. The owners of two small cubs, as large as a black and 
10, as one witness expressed it, shipped them from Syracuse to Sandy Creek in Oswego County for the purpose of a show by way of Rome by the American Merchants Union Express Company. It was claimed that the company so carelessly shipped them that they were smothered to death on the way. The company claimed that it was through the careless manner in which the bears were boxed that the bears were killed. The jury gave the plaintiffs the sum of $900 for two little bears, $450 apiece. Nothing unusual about them, only the fact that they were tamed, so that hereafter this will be the settled value of bears, having been settled legally at that sum. Dwellers of John Brown's tract, your fortune is made. Bring your little bears, be they no larger than a woodchuck, or of no more real value. Here you may receive the sum of $450 each. Start out at once with trap and dog and gun. Eureka! I have found a place where I get $450 for a cub bear. Commend us to an Onondaga County jury on the price of bears. Syracuse Standard. Wow, you can cut the snark with a knife. It was really weird for me to hear John Brown's tract pop up because my family has a camp in the Adirondacks just down the road from Brown Tract Pond. So, we're getting more information as I work my way backwards, and we will get still more information after this word. New Tin and Stove Store George King, manufacturer and dealer in cooking and heating stoves, Tinware, tin roofing and guttering, made and repaired in neat, workmanlike manner. Also have the well-known Charter Oak Stoves. All work done, and all stoves sold, warranted to give satisfaction. Please give me a call. Franklin Street, next door to S&I Summers, Lexington. P.S. I will work or sell goods as cheap as the cheapest, and everything warranted to give entire satisfaction. George King. We now return to our show. February 14, 1871. Circuit Court and Court of Oyer and Terminer. I have no idea if those are legal terms or names. I haven't gotten around to looking that up. Anyway, this is the circuit court. Honorable Henry A. Foster, Justice, presiding. James Little, Sidney H. Cook, Esquires, Justices, Sessions. February 13th, p.m. Stephen D. Sperry and Martin P. Clark against the American Merchants Union Express Company, Gott and Garfield for plaintiffs, Gardner and Burdick, for defendants. Two she-bears came out of the woods, but they didn't kill any little children. On the contrary, they were two young cubs tamed by the plaintiffs for shows, etc. The plaintiffs in September 1869 shipped the said bears by the defendant's company from Syracuse to Sandy Creek in Oswego County. The plaintiffs say they were smothered to death by the fault and neglect of the defendant, and this suit was brought to recover the value of the bears. The plaintiff 
Sperry testified that the bears were richly worth $1,000. The defendant claimed that the day in question was very hot, and the defendant at first refused to take such freight, but finally allowed the plaintiffs to put the bears aboard at the risk of plaintiffs, that the bears died without any fault on the part of the defendant. The jury gave a verdict for the plaintiffs for $900. Okay, so we're really getting somewhere. I found the specific write-up of the court case, and uh, looks like the thing about the bears was legit, so I kept working my way backwards. Oh, and by the way, in order to work your way forwards or backwards in Fulton history, you have to know the system backwards and forwards, literally, because in a lot of cases, the newspapers were scanned from back to front. So as the numbering sequence increments, the pages are actually proceeding in a backwards fashion. So you really need to know how to, uh, how to, how to get around in a way that's not intuitive to uh, non-computer savvy people. But, you know, if you want any help, just ask. I'm, I'm happy to promote the use of that site. So anyway, I, I made my way back through the pages to February 11th, three days previous to that last entry, and in the same paper, the Daily Journal, Syracuse, I found this. Again, Circuit Court and Court of Oyer and Terminer, uh, Honorable Henry A. Foster, same justice, same, uh, same Esquire's uh, justices sessions. Friday, February 11th, 1871. Charles McCormick, administrator, etc., against the Syracuse and Geddes Railway Company. The jury in the above case gave a verdict for the plaintiff for $200. Whoa! So, it was factually correct. Not only did I find that out by digging that far back, now I've got a name, Charles McCormick. So, you see, we're, we're building up search terms as we go. And I got a surprising amount of hits just by entering in uh, combinations of search terms including the number 200 and or uh, the name uh, Charles McCormick. And you always want to try first or last names, whatever, because you got to count on uh, the, the OCR being absolute crap when the system resulted from scanning third-generation copies of microfilm. It's, it's a crapshoot. Anyway, so now we're really getting to pay dirt. I worked my way back to February 10th, 1871. This is the first of the two sessions involving this guy's case involving his daughter. And I want to repeat the, uh, the trigger warning because this, this gets rough. Charles McCormick, Administrator, etc., against the Syracuse and Geddes Railway Company, Ruger, Wallace, and Jenny for plaintiff, Pratt, Mitchell, and Brown for defendant. Charles McCormick resides on Fayette Street, through which the defendant's road is constructed. In April 1870, the child of the plaintiff, a little girl of three years of age, left its mother and ran out of the house on the railroad track of the defendant's and was run over by the car and killed. The car wheels ran over the child's head, 
crushing it to pieces. One of the witnesses stated that as he picked up the child, its brains dropped out and fell upon his boots. The child's mother had just put it out of her arms on the floor, and in two or three minutes afterwards she looked out and saw the car pass over it. The plaintiff moved for a non-suit on the ground that the, ne the negligence on the part of the parent contributed to the injury complained of. Motion denied. The defense was that the injury occurred without the negligence of the defendant on trial at the noon adjournment. <sighs> I told you it was rough, and it's going to get rougher. After this word... Ayers Sarsaparilla for purifying the blood. The reputation this excellent medicine enjoys is derived from its cures, many of which are truly marvelous. Inveterate cases of scrofulous disease, where the system seemed saturated with corruption, have been purified and cured by it. Scrofulous affections and disorders which were aggravated by the scrofulous contamination until they were painfully afflicting have been radically cured in such great numbers in almost every section of the country that the public scarcely need to be informed of its virtues or uses. Scrofulous poison is one of the most destructive enemies of our race, often this unseen and unfelt tenant of the organism undermines the constitution and invites the attack of enfeebling or fatal diseases without exciting a suspicion of its presence. Again, it seems to breed infection throughout the body and then, on some favorable occasion, rapidly develop into one or other of its hideous forms, either on the surface or among the vitals. In the latter, tubercles may be suddenly deposited in the lungs or heart, or tumors formed in the liver, or it shows its presence by eruptions on the skin, or foul ulcerations on some part of the body. Hence, the occasional use of a bottle of this sarsaparilla is advisable, even when no active symptoms of disease appear. Persons afflicted with the following complaints generally find immediate relief, and at length cure by the use of this sarsaparilla, St. Anthony's fire, rose or erysipelas, tetter, salt room, scald head, ringworm, sore eyes, sore ears, and other eruptions or visible forms of scrofulous disease. Also, in the more concealed forms as dyspepsia, dropsy, heart disease, fits, epilepsy, neuralgia, and the various ulcerous affections of the muscular and nervous systems. Syphilis or venereal and mercurial diseases are cured by it, though a long time is required for subduing these obstinate maladies by any medicine. But long-continued use of this medicine will cure the complaint. Leucoria or whites, uterine ulcerations, and female diseases are commonly soon relieved and ultimately cured by its purifying and invigorating effect. Minute directions for each case are found in our Amane supplied gratis. 
rheumatism and gout, when caused by accumulations of extraneous matter in the blood, yield quickly to it, as also liver complaints, torpidity, congestion or inflammation of the liver and jaundice, when arising, as they often do, from the rankling poisons in the blood. This sarsaparilla is a great restorer for the strength and vigor of the system. Those who are languid and listless, despondent, sleepless, and troubled with nervous apprehensions or fears or any of the affections symptomatic of weakness will find immediate relief and convincing evidence of its restorative power upon trial. Prepared by... Dr. J.C. Iyer and Company, Lowell, Massachusetts, Practical and Analytical Chemists. And we're back. The Troy Daily Times, April 13, 1870. A little girl, three or four years old, named McCormick, while attempting to cross the track of the Syracuse and Geddes Street Railway on Sunday last, was knocked down by the Whiffle Tree of a passing car and fell upon the track when the wheels passed over her head, killing her instantly. Thirty-five persons were in the car at the time. Remember that bit about the whiffle tree. I'm going to come back to that. Same day, Syracuse Daily Courier. Coroner Didama yesterday held an inquest on the body of Bridget McCormick, the little girl not yet three years old and who was killed last Sunday by being run over by the Geddes streetcars. The verdict absolves the driver from all blame, he having done his best to prevent the accident. The next article is from the same day, and it's from the Syracuse Daily Standard. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's an exhaustive court record in which the young man, uh, 18-year-old William Butler, live, lives in Geddes. Uh, he was the driver of the railroad car. This was a horse-drawn railroad car. Uh, George Chamberlain, uh, he was on the car at the time of the accident. David Wentworth, conductor. John Carroll, lives near the, uh, the shanty where the accident occurred. He just left his X mark. I've, I've never seen that in, the, uh, in a newspaper, but uh, it's got his name, and in the middle of John Carroll it says, his X mark. Benjamin F. Pierce, he lives at the corner of Magnolia and Fayette Streets. William Hart, he is the uh, AM superintendent of Getta Street Railway. That's the, the railway that uh, was in operation when the accident happened. And Mrs. Hannah L. Schoonmaker uh, lives at the corner of Magnolia and Fayette. So they, they all give their testimony. And uh, the verdict of the jury, Geddes, April 12, 1870. The jury in the case of the child Bridget McCormick, who was killed by the Geddes Street railway car last Sunday, find that she came to her death by accident and that as the driver of the car exercised all possible care and diligence to prevent the accident, he is not deserving the least 
censure. Uh, and they've got the signature of the coroner, the foreman, etc., etc. Going back two more days, April 11th. Eight, oh, sorry, my bad. <clears throat> Here we are actually going back better part of a year. And the only re reason I was able to do that is I'd gleaned enough clues from each succeeding article that I found to be able to, to figure out when the original incident happened. And it was uh, April of 1870. And once I had the specific date range, it was just a matter of working my way back manually from one page to the next and eyeballing them until I found what I wanted. The Syracuse Daily Journal, April 11th, 1870. Fatal accident on the Geddes Street Railway. A sad accident resulting in the death of a little girl aged about three and a half years occurred Sunday evening on the Geddes Street Railway near the rolling mill. The deceased was a daughter of Charles and Catherine McCormick residing on the south side of the track just inside the Geddes line. About half past five o'clock Sunday afternoon, the little girl left the home and went across the track to the north side and down the embankment at that point. As the half-past-five car was coming down the grade at that point, the child came up the bank and attempted to cross the track just as the car reached that point. The horses passed the child, but the whiffle tree struck her, knocking her down and upon track the wheels passing over her head, killing her instantly. The car was very heavily loaded, having on board some 35 persons. The driver and a young man on the platform saw the child just as she came up the embankment, and both set the brake instantly, but the momentum of the loaded car prevented it being stopped until the accident had occurred. An inquest will be held today. Considerable excitement prevailed at the scene of the accident, and many ridiculous stories were afloat, without foundation, however. So at that point, I finally had the names of both parents, and that was enough for me to find this couple and their children in Ancestry.com. I'm sure I could have found the same information in uh, FamilySearch.com. That's a massively useful resource if you don't know about it already. Most people who do genealogy use it all the time. But thanks to my father-in-law, Joe, uh, I have access to Ancestry, so that's what I used. More on them in a moment. Light for the million. Anchor oil. The most wonderful achievement of modern science. The greatest illuminator of the American continent. It must supersede all other illuminating oils. This is no catchpenny to swindle the ignorant. Try it and you will use no other. For sale by G.C. Alexander, who also keeps a good assortment of drugs, medicines, chemicals, oils, patent medicines, lamps, lamp chimneys, wicks, burners, fancy soaps, pomods, hair oils, tricks, extracts, and perfumery of all kinds, wallpaper, school books, maps, slates, ink and ink stands, letter 
cap, legal cap, note, and billet paper, and all other kinds of stationery and fancy articles. C.G. Alexander, Lexington, Missouri. So now we've come to the portion that's really important to me and is the most difficult for me to convey. Just because so few people are interested in historical newspapers in the same way that I am. These archives are massively useful just as survey tools. I mean, forget about forget about finding the specifics of your uh, ancestors' details. For, forget about your genealogy. Forget even about the, the specific, like, micro-investigations that I do. Just the ability to plunder massive databases of millions of pages of newspapers and get back a result set? Stop there. That is incredibly useful, just as a survey tool, uh, and to answer questions of accuracy and bias. For instance, one of the main reasons I, I took the effort to perform this whole rigmarole of a search was because I wanted to know, was that article put there in that Lexington, Missouri newspaper as a way of slamming Syracuse as this uh, exemplar of an immoral northern city where the people don't know the value of human life relative to animals' lives. And that, that was my assumption going into it. But listen to this list of newspapers where I found variants on the same story of the girl versus the bears in relative cost. Uh, April 13th, 1870, Syracuse Daily Standard. April 13th, 1870, Syracuse Daily Courier. April 13th, 1870, Troy, New York Daily Times. So we're getting out towards Albany in just a couple of days. <clears throat> now, we're skipping ahead to 1871. So there's a big gap. February 14th, Syracuse Daily Journal. Uh, that's when the, uh, the courtroom trials, when the guy sued, sued the, uh, the railway company, as opposed to the initial trial back in 1870 that found no fault on, on anyone's part. So the, this is, this is when the, the trial happened the following year when the guy was trying to get some, some satisfaction from the company. Uh, so that was uh, Syracuse, February 14th, 1871, when the articles that I was able to find start. Then February 16th, Rochester Evening Express. February 21st, Syracuse, New York Daily Standard. February 22nd, Chicago, Illinois, Chicago Tribune. So the story had legs going national. February 25th, Jamestown, New York Daily Journal. February 28th, Brooklyn, Daily Eagle. Skipping ahead to March 5th, New Orleans, Louisiana, The Morning Star and Catholic Messenger. Then, on March 11th, we have that uh, Lexington, Missouri paper. Then, uh, and that article was actually the same, oh, sorry, uh, then, then we have the 
uh, Syracuse Daily Standard, and that's the same as a Corning Journal article that we don't see until March 16th. So you can see how the, the newspaper ecosystem is a constant churn. Sometimes articles will lay dormant and then just crop up seemingly out of nowhere. I think the real story is that uh, the Corning New York Journal, maybe they, maybe they didn't find the story that newsworthy, so they didn't publish it for a month. And then it looped back to them through, say, uh, uh, New Orleans. And then they thought, oh, well, that's a story, so I guess we'll print it after all. Uh, that's just my guess. But anyway, uh, March 16th, Yonkers, New York. March 31st, Oregon City Weekly Enterprise. July 3rd, New York, New York Evening Telegram. So it took the story months and months to get to New York. That must have been a really slow news day. Or again, it looped back through some other source. So that survey, just looking at those result sets, even if I had done no other investigation, that would have gone a long way towards answering my question. In other words, I have no reason to suspect that that Lexington, Missouri article was printed out of any motive that involved uh, throwing shade at the immoral northern sensibilities of Syracuse. Uh, judging from the story's representation in northern newspapers, it's more a general case of people finding satisfaction in stories about the court system being just hosed. Aside from that broad question, uh, the investigation allowed me to answer the specific question of where the article fell on the accurate to sensationalized spectrum. Uh, and the answer, somewhere around the middle, and it was a lot closer to the accurate end of the spectrum than I expected. Uh, now, I won't say it's completely accurate just because I, I think it misrepresents the situation significantly because the comparison between the girl and the bears, it's kind of apples and oranges. One involves the American Merchants Union Express and the other involves a local horse-drawn railway company. So uh, this is from the Buffalo Daily Courier of that same year, uh, October 9th. 1871. I'm not going to read the whole article, but this is a letter from that same guy you caught a glimpse of in the courtroom article, William Hart, the superintendent of Syracuse and Gaddis Railway. Uh, and it's it has a tone that's almost mopey. Uh, the overall gist of it is that Boy, this this thing has this uh, venture has really been struggling since we incorporated in 1863, started operation in 1864. I'll just read the last 
few bits. The company is paying a trifle over expenses and between February 1st, 1869 and March 1st, 1871, have declared a dividend of 4%. This amount was its entire surplus earnings. It has no sinking or repair fund. The Fifth Ward Railroad Company commenced operations about three years ago. The length of the road is one and a half miles and the regular fare five cents. Our street railroads, like those at Rochester, have nearly a common center from which to radiate. Consequently, our roads are all short. There is an intense desire here, as well as in other cities, to make street railroads run free and keep the streets in repair for the privilege. If I have omitted any fact you particularly desire information about, I shall be happy to supply it on a future occasion. Uh, respectfully yours, etc., William Hart, Superintendent, Syracuse and Geddes Railway. So, again, the gist of it was, well, we're barely breaking even here. It seemed like he was really struggling. So, my point of reading that to you is that, think about that journey, uh, journey, uh, think about that jury. The people on the jury probably knew Hart and didn't want to run the risk of bankrupting the railway by giving a big settlement. Plus, it gets murky because this guy was from a big Irish family and people at the time were deeply, deeply bigoted against Irish, which is one of the reasons why the, the Irish stuck together so much during the Civil War, right after they came over uh, during the potato famine, and they, they cohered as a, a, a social force and as a, a political voting bloc. So I think we may also be seeing a reflection of that jury's attitude towards the family. They may have thought, well, it was her own fault. She's low class. She can't keep an eye on her own child. We'll throw a little bit of money the family's way, but we're not going to reward them with a lot, especially since it will be to the detriment of Hart and his uh, local rail system. That's all speculation on my part, but anyway, I came back with some unexpected answers after my general survey and my much more specific reading of the articles. Now, I get a lot of satisfaction from answering all those broad and narrow questions. I am passionate about historical fidelity. I'm passionate about dispelling myth and lies and disinformation because I consider them corruptions of the sacred, really. I mean, this is one of the only one of the only things I hold sacred. I desperately want to show people, especially when it comes to racial violence, I want to show people our historical patterns of the rhetorical devices we use to reckon with it or not reckon with it. All that is rock-solid truth and my motivations are not pure, purely rational, and this is a great time to lay that on the table, give you that little, uh, that little caveat, especially considering what I said at the beginning of the, this episode. I am a stay-at-home parent, and 
I have this precious little two-year-old and the thought of something like this happening to her, of course that's going to engender an emotional response and of course that's going to figure into my enthusiastic investigation. Of course it is. I read those articles and I think I was... My emotional circuit breakers cut in to a degree, but I'll tell you, last night, when I finally got the names of little Bridget's parents and I went to Ancestry, and I found some census records and I found out that they had a whole bunch of kids. I think seven. Something on the order of seven. I breathed such a sigh of relief. And then I felt mildly obscene for having that sense of relief. Because who am I to think that it was somehow more easily dismissed, somehow more manageable for Charles and Catherine just because they had other kids. Who am I to think that? I've had tragedy that came near to breaking me. I've had... It broke my heart. I went into a dark place that I didn't know I would come out of. And what happened to those two parents had to have been indescribably worse than what I went through. So I can only imagine what that would do to me, how it would break me. On the other hand, I think the feeling that was striving to come to the surface of me was a recognition that Yes, of course, those children would have been consolation for them. So, to an extent, that's a legitimate reaction. I did feel a sense of, of relief for them. And this is why I'm taking pains to point out, look, folks, my motivations are not entirely rational. Because I feel a little hypocritical. I pride myself on being a devout agnostic. I pride myself on being an empirically-minded person, a rationalist. And yet, there is this kernel of me which clings steadfastly to that old cliché, if someone remembers you, you are not truly dead. That's not true! That's not rational. And yet there is this part of me that believes it with a, a fierceness that belies all of my vaunted rationality. Now, like Ben Kenobi said, what I said was true from a certain point of view. I mean, yeah, I'm not literally keeping my mother alive, but the patterns that constituted the soul of my mother incubated and propagated themselves within me. I carry her forward 
into the future. To the extent that she still exists, she is within me. So in that sense, am I keeping little Bridget alive? Well, no. I mean, it doesn't make anything... It doesn't make things better for her. Her life ended that horrible day when she just happened to run out at the last... At the, at the wrong second. And it makes me think of those times when I looked away for a couple of seconds and then Beatrice was closer to the road than I thought she could have gotten within those couple of seconds. And I quail. <sighs> just the thought of it. Just the thought of it makes me quail. Historic headlines will return after this message from our sponsor. Farm Wagons. Studebaker Wagons. We think that we have selected as our leading wagon the very best wagon in the market. And we challenge comparison between it and any other. The wheels of a wagon are its most vital point, And the Studebaker slope shoulder spoke gives the strongest and most lasting wheel known we have the split hub for examination in order that i can show just how the slope shoulder is made and why it is superior to all others our three inch will compare in size with most of the three and a quarter inch wagons and is better ironed and we only ask a close and impartial comparison between our wagons and others to satisfy the farmer that we have. The Wagon of 1870, H. J. Armstrong. We now return to our show. Did you notice that I was uncharacteristically vague in my description of that newspaper from... Lexington, Missouri? Yeah, I buried the lead. Might want to brace yourself. This is extremely ugly in a totally different way. The Weekly Caucasian. Lexington, Missouri. Yes, that means exactly what you think it means. This is the leftmost column of page two of that same edition, 150 years ago yesterday now, March 11th, 1871. Note the difference in tone here between these articles and the articles from the Syracuse Daily Journal in the previous episode which were published the previous day. The Weekly Caucasian. State sovereignty, white supremacy, and repudiation. This is liberty. Our motto, never despair of the republic. Our platform, 
the Constitution of 1860, and the rights of the states. Our doctrines. This is a white man's government, made by white men for white men, and their posterity forever. Down with the Fifteenth Amendment. Sorry, I read that wrong. Down with the Fifteenth Bedamnedment. Down with the Fifteenth Bedamnedment. Total repudiation of the monstrous Yankee war debt. Accursed, unconstitutional burden accumulated by an unconstitutional mob styling itself a Congress in the prosecution of an unconstitutional crusade for the accomplishment of an unconstitutional and horrid purpose down with bondholders and taxes. Subordination of the military to the civil authorities down with the satraps. Equal taxation and the rightful representation of all the states or another rebellion. Revolution must be met by counter-revolution, force by force, violence by violence, and usurpation should be overthrown, if needs be, by the bayonet. Down with test, oaths, and registration. Viva la République! <sighs> Tan Vat Villainy a joint committee of the upper and lower houses of the Washington Malefactory visited the maudlin pighead of the White House on Tuesday to ascertain his royal wishes in regard to an adjournment. He was opposed to any such procedure and in his drunken, hiccupy style submitted a number of reasons why the congressional mob should string out its session. One was that he expected to convene the Senate in extraordinary session at an early day, as he was quite confident that the Joint High Commission would satisfactorily conclude its labors and submit the result through him to the Senate. Another reason to his mind was the condition of affairs in the South, which certainly demanded additional legislation. He had received from the governor of a southern state a letter stating that 11 Republicans had been murdered in one day, while the males had to be suspended between Frankfurt and Louisville, Kentucky, because of Ku Klux outrages on a colored male agent. He stated that he was quite powerless under the present laws to prevent this state of things and required action on the part of Congress. He said nothing about protracting the session to await the return of the San Domingo commissioners. Hugh here. So, did you catch that bit about Grant being a drunkard? You're witnessing, in real time, the building of the, more or less, myth about Grant being a, a besotted, useless drunkard. I mean, he was a drinker. He was self-admittedly a an, an alcohol addict. However, by all accounts, relative to his era, he was nowhere near as bad as the copious southern press and the northern copperhead press of the time make him out to be. It was the equivalent of, um, of Crooked Hillary. It was that much of an iconic, repeated phrase that uh, sort of bootstrapped itself into uh, seeming true just because it was repeated so much. On to the next story in that column. Isn't that love story 
on the outside of this week's Caucasian thrillingly interesting, the wild adventures and a hairbreadth escapes of unknown, the dauntless heroism and sublime integrity of ditto, and the rapt, passionate, fond devotion of same, all make it one of the most intensely, absorbingly, overwhelmingly powerful and fascinating literal literary productions of the day. It will be continued next week, and our 10,000 readers will have the satisfaction of learning whether unknown, same, or ditto, married the beautiful young heroine, which one rashly ended his own existence, and which one died broken-hearted and repentant. In a foreign land, seriously, we hope our distant subscribers will have patience with us this weekend next. Next, the tax list has to be published. It pays us. Week after next, look out for a scorcher. Heaven and several other things permitting, we'll then get out one of the warmest sheets that ever went through a printing press without melting the types. Hugh here. That's interesting. It's sort of a, a self-referential, uh, droll little essay on the nuts and bolts need to finance the newspaper through a bunch of bullshit, uh, heart-wringing stories that uh, follow the same boilerplate. The next article is, again, about quote-unquote drunken Grant a la Crooked Hillary. The besotted Ulysses has just ordered two more regiments of Yankee soldiers from the frontier to the south. True, the Apaches and other savages are burning a few houses, driving off a few hundred head of stock, and scalping a few white men, women, and children every day the sun rises and sets, but what of it? Niggers in rebeldom must be protected. The demon of secession must be exorcised. The purity of the ballot box must be preserved. The spewings of Ipecact, hell, must be kept in power against the will, wishes, and interests of the last decent citizens on the continent. Let us have peace. Hugh here. Wow, can't you just feel the butthurt radiating from that article and the whataboutism, which is rhetorically indistinguishable from what you see literally today in 2021, the whataboutism that uh, counters any mention of, oh, say, the March 6th insurrection of the Capitol by saying, oh, Black Lives Matter, Blah. what about, what about, what about? All right, the next article. A white reprobate named Johnson who, a few days since, publicly married a nigger wench near Grenada, Mississippi, was taken from his bed the second night after the wedding by a party of young men, who, after giving him a coat of tar and feathers, notified him to take his colored acquisition and emigrate, which he did, threatening to return with state militia, but he has not, as yet, made his appearance. Hugh here. So, wow. <clears throat> open media support of violence 
to resist every aspect of Reconstruction. Next article. Our august legislature's doings for the past week epitomized clumsy registration bill half-passed, St. Louis County court ousted, convention question discussed, railroad fund squabbled over, grand receptions, brilliant parties, big drunks, only those and nothing more, as Poe's pet crow remarked. <laughs> Hugh here. Uh, I I gotta admit I like the uh, the Raven reference. Nevermore. <clears throat> Next article: Two steamboat loads of Yankee Janizaries will pass down the river today or tomorrow, bound south to aid in the devil's work of re-reconstructing Georgia and the Carolinas. Here's your radical piece. Dr. Miller of Georgia, for seven days the occupant of a seat in the U.S. Senate, gets pay from July 29, 1868 to the date of his election, not less than $17,000, including mileage. Governor Clayton of Arkansas has resigned the U.S. senatorship to which position he was elected last January, and the articles of impeachment have been withdrawn. Uh, looks like that's about everything of interest in the... Oh, this is the one I wanted you to, to hear. His ex-gubernatorial nincompoopery, Joe Malberg, is to be sent out as minister to Brazil. A wet nurse ought to be sent with him. Fred Douglas is being urged as a delegate to Congress from the District of Columbia. Hugh here. You can tell just how sweaty they were to drum up fear and hysteria at the thought of Frederick Douglass uh, being elected as a delegate to Congress. So, the point of me reading all that on that day, the same day that that article about Syracuse appeared in that paper in Missouri, is to point out the asymmetry in tone between Syracuse and Lexington, Missouri. Go back to the previous episode. Sure, they were throwing plenty of shade at the goings-on in the South, but Tonally, there was a night and day difference. They just didn't have the rancor that one might expect from a populace that had given and sacrificed and bled so much in that war against the rebels. At least insofar as the newspaper indicated, and again, I always include that caveat because it's only a reflection. At least insofar as the newspaper was concerned, it seemed to indicate they wanted to get past it. They wanted to smooth things over. Hell, they, they had all of these articles, as you, as you heard in the previous episode, about how cool it was to be traveling in the South and 
all the sightseeing they were doing. It was touristy. It was touristy. And here we have the other direction. Whoo boy, they did not appreciate the tourism. They didn't appreci appreciate anything associated with Reconstruction. They had nothing but bilious rage, simmering hatred and resentment. That asymmetry of tone was a manifestation of asymmetrical warfare. In other words, terrorism, as exemplified by the KKK. That's what it's all about. Asymmetrical warfare involves using means which elicit a disproportionate response and disproportionate yields. And it worked. The guerrilla war that the South waged after they lost the military conflict worked. You can see it working right here. You can see all of that rage working. Historic headlines will return after this message. New Saddle and Harness Manufactory. T.C. Crenshaw, manufacturer and dealer in saddles, harness, collars, whips, spurs, bridles, lashes, curry combs, brushes, etc., etc. Pine Street, nearly opposite Fish's livery stable. My work is not made by boys, but by experienced workmen, and of the best material, which I will sell as low as good work can be sold. Repairing done at reasonable prices. T.C. Crenshaw. Well, folks, I really appreciate this opportunity. If you've stuck with this, hey, once again, you have my thanks, and please, let me know what you think. Tell me whether this was coherent. Tell me whether you think this was at all worth listening to. Especially if you're into any of this stuff that I'm into, like the genealogy of it or the history of it, the historiography of it, any of this. Let me know what you think. Thanks for listening. And until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please. And my love, he's stolen away.